All right. Well, we are going to begin our new series here this week called Unlocking Freedom in Your Life. I'm very excited about this series. It's about grabbing hold of freedom in Christ. You know, there are many promises in the scriptures about ways we can be set free, ways that we can grab hold of the good things of God. And we don't want to miss that. We don't want the promises of God and the freedoms that we can have in Christ to just float on by and we don't grab hold of it. So we want to know how to apprehend the promises of God, and that's what this whole series is about. So our text is a very well-known text, but it's one that a lot of people don't even know they're quoting Jesus when they say it. And I think it's also probably in my estimation, if I say in my estimation, then I can't be wrong, because in my estimation, this is the most half-understood section of Scripture the most partially understood. I don't know if it's completely misunderstood, but it's only partially understood. And if we only know the part of it, we're not going to be able to apprehend the fullness of it. So we're going to look into the fullness of what Jesus had to say. And our text is from John chapter 8. And let me set the stage for what's going on. Jesus is talking to the crowds and the crowds are having varying different opinions of him. Some people in the crowd don't like him. Other people in the crowd are putting their faith in him. And so he is having to deal with this kind of duality in the crowd, where, again, some are just starting to catch on, some aren't, and some are switching in between. And he's he's working with them. And so there's people in the crowd that are getting it. There's people in the crowd that aren't. And he's trying to speak to this whole group at the same time. So we we come in in the middle of this dialogue. And so that's where we start. We'll start in John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we've heard the truth will set you free. Amen. Jesus said that. The truth will set you free. Verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. So there were those who believed him and there were those where there was a significant enough tension for him to say, you're ready to kill me. And of course, later on, they would. This was a very tense situation. Here's where Jesus says the truth will set you free. As I said earlier, that's only part of the thought. We've got to get a whole grasp of how the truth sets us free. Who doesn't want to be set free? We want to be free. We want to grab the fullness of freedom in Christ. We don't want that freedom to pass us by. And let me just say, each one of us, myself included, in this room, we need freedom in Christ. All of us need that. Let's just seek that freedom from God together. I've got a couple of preliminary thoughts that I want to go through before we get into a deeper understanding of that promise in John 8, 31 and 32. But 
the first preliminary thought is that the Pharisees were offended by the insinuation that they needed to be set free. Let's go to verse 33. They answered him after Jesus says, you know, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they said, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Their response to the truth will set you free was, we don't need freedom. We're free already. What are you saying? There's something wrong with us? What are you saying? We, we got problems? So no, we're, we're free. What do you mean? We're not, we don't need to be set free. How many people have heard that the, the first step in solving the problem is admitting that you have a problem? right? And the Pharisees here, they weren't really catching on to what Jesus was saying, and they also were resistant to understanding what Jesus was saying. And they said, we don't need to be free. We're fine just the way we are. Now, that is the biggest danger, the biggest pitfall in receiving freedom in Christ is figuring that I'm good right now. I don't need any help. I'm fine. What we need to do is acknowledge that we need God's help. Acknowledge that we need freedom in Christ. Acknowledge that we need to grab hold of the things of God in fuller and fuller ways so that we can walk in greater and greater freedom. Again, each one of us in this place, myself included, we need greater measures of freedom in Christ. Maybe you've started your journey and you've broken some stuff off, and you're walking in greater freedom than you ever have before in your life. There's more. There is more. None of us have arrived at perfect freedom in Christ. There are the strongholds. There are the pitfalls. There are the issues that we deal with, and we want to acknowledge that, not pretend that we're just fine the way we are. Now, you don't have to feel bad about yourself while you acknowledge that there's greater levels of freedom. Right? You can be completely happy with who you are, have perfectly high self-esteem, and say, Lord, I know there's more. Give me some more. It's not that there's something wrong with you and you need to feel bad about yourself. You need to feel like, man, there's good things I need to grab hold of. I remember when I was a brand new preacher. I was in a church that was a district supervised church. So we had meetings with all the fancy people and they would ask about how things are going. You know, here we've got our own, uh, we're an autonomous church and we've got our own church board, all that sort of thing. But this was where I'd have to go to meetings at the Minnesota district and talk about how things were going. And they asked me on a scale of one to 10, where do you think you are in your uh, ability to pastor well? And I said, well, probably about a four. And they just, they, they laughed. They're like, a four? <laughs> like, that's terrible. You know, and I thought, well, you know, you don't, you don't realize the potential I have. You know, I could, I, could, I could be way better than this. I mean, like, this, is, this isn't very good at all. But I didn't feel bad. I know there's way more that we can get to. I don't feel bad about that. I'm excited about that. Let's grab on to greater potential. But let's acknowledge the fact that we need God. We need greater freedom. We need more from the Lord. The next preliminary thought, how many people have heard of bad choices? Like I'm on this road because of bad choices. Jesus says something a little different in verse 34 that we just read. Verse 34, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He doesn't say everyone who sins has made some bad choices. How many choices does a slave have? A slave is forced to do what they don't want to do. How many of you have ever felt a pull? You knew you're not supposed to, 
and you don't really even want to, but there's a pull. Is that a choice? I tell you, there are choices that we make, but there are also forces pulling on us. And we either yield to those forces and are pulled by those forces, or we learn how to be free and walk away from them and conquer them. There's more to it than just bad choices. All right, let's find out how to get there. Three steps in the path to freedom. So right now, we're going to look at John 8, 31 and 32, and we're going to look at three steps on the path to freedom. These three steps we will apply in a variety of different situations over the coming weeks. Pastor Larry is going to be preaching next week on getting free from fear and anxiety. Wouldn't it be great to be free from fear and anxiety? How do we apply these steps so that we can actually get there rather than just go, yeah, that'd be neat, but I know it's never going to happen. I'll just keep smiling, saying, praise God, and no, it's just never going to happen. No, let's get there. We've got to follow these steps. Let's look at John 8, 31, and we'll learn the three steps on the path to freedom. To the Jews who had believed him. So these are people in the crowd who are saying, yep, I like that guy. They may have not had a full revelation that he was the son of God, but they're like, yeah, he's he's from God. This is good. To the Jews who had believed him, he said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciple. So this is step number one, holding to the teachings. I looked at the Greek word for hold to. If you hold to my teaching, the Greek word, it's a very simple word. It means to stay. If you stay in my teaching, then you're really my disciple. It means to abide, to dwell in, to stay in the teachings of Jesus. This is more than merely hearing the truth. It's abiding in the truth. It's not enough to just hear. I believe that we can explain holding to Jesus' teachings in three steps. So we've got our our three steps on the path. Step number one has three mini steps on the inside. In order to hold to the teachings of Jesus, we need to first know what they are. Second, we need to trust them. And then third, we need to put them into practice in our life. That's holding to the teachings of Jesus. To know what they are, to trust them, And to put them into practice. Holding to the teachings. It's not enough to just know what they are. We need to also trust them. Put our faith in Jesus. And then put them into practice. I'm going to do a couple of uh, verses here that just kind of reiterate that. Romans 2.13 says this. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. If you know you're not supposed to steal, but you steal anyway, are you righteous? No, you have to not steal, right? If you know not to swear at your kids, but you do it anyway, are you righteous? No, it doesn't matter. I know the proper parenting techniques. I don't do any of them, but is that going to help your family? No, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law. So is the Bible quiz going to help you? Only if you put it into practice. You get 100% on the test, but if you don't do any of it, it doesn't make any difference. And then James 1.22 is very powerful. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Is it possible that you can listen to the word of God, to read the word of God, and be self-deceived? What? 
Aren't we supposed to read the Bible? It says here, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. What's the deception of James 1.22? How are we deceived? This is what I believe the deception of James 1.22 is. You know, you read the Bible, you memorize the books of the Bible in order, you know, you got your, all your memory verses done, but you're not living any of it. You feel like you're making progress with God. You feel like, hey, I'm doing my duty. I'm, I'm doing the religious things I'm supposed to do, but you're not getting anywhere because you're not putting any of them into practice. And so you're deceived into thinking you're making progress with God, but you're not because you don't make progress till you start to do it, till you hold to the teachings. Where you learn the teachings, you put your faith in the teachings, and you put them into practice in your life. So that's step one. Hold to the teachings of Jesus. There's two more steps after that. That's not enough. There's progress. John 8, verse 32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here we see steps two and three in the path to freedom. Again, step one, hold to the teaching. Step two, then you'll know the truth. You don't get to know the truth until you hold to the teaching. This is a little confusing because of the word know, to to know the answer. For us, we, we go to school, if we know the answer, if we can get the answer right in Sunday school. Let me quiz you and see how you're doing on your ability to answer the Sunday school question. So, I should blank my enemies. I should hate. I should sabotage, I should love, or none of the above. Which one is it? It's love my enemies. I should love my enemies. Do you know what that's like? Have you done it? Have you tried? It's one thing to know the answer. It's another thing to attain to the level of spiritual development to where you can have enemies in your life against you and your family and you can actually love them. That's a whole different thing than being able to say the answer is C. Then you will know the truth. This is the type of truth that you know by experience. How far is a marathon? 26.2 miles. I can write that down. I've never run a marathon. I hear mile 23 is a bear. But I don't know what mile 23 feels like. I thought mile 25 would be a real hard one. Because it's at the end. But the people who've ran marathons told me, no, By then, you're just like, all I have to do is live, and I'll make it. But mile 23, they have to live, and then they have to keep going after that. And they're thinking, oh, no, I still have a 5K to go. And I'm so beat up and and tired and dehydrated and cramping up. And oh, there's things that you get to know by experience that are very different than just head knowledge. 26.2 miles. Great. Well, how many pairs of shoes do you go through while you're training? I don't know. (laughs) How many injuries are you prone to get while training? What other things do you have to give up in your life so that you can properly train, so that you can survive a marathon? What's it like to run it at different ages? There's all these things that we never know until we get to the place of experience. But when we get to the place of experience, then it's no longer theory and speculation, but we have an understanding of what's going on. We know it. We have experience. Too many times, the things of God are stuck in the realm of theory and speculation because we've never done them. What's day three of a fast like? Where you're fasting and praying and seeking God. What's day three like? You're not going to find out until you go there. What's day seven like? What's day 40 like? I have no idea. (laughs) I know some people who have been there. I've never been there. I don't know what day 40 is like. 
I do know that if I fast and pray, one of the interesting things that I've learned over time is that it isn't till the way end or sometimes even after the fast is over that the great revelation comes. You're slogging through, slogging through, thinking, well, I've been fasting for days. God, where are you at? You know, slogging through. And then all of a sudden, bing, there it comes. It's often towards the end or even after the fast is over that the revelation comes. These are things that we learn by experience. Then you will know the truth. Notice the word then. You don't get to know the truth by hearing the teachings and not doing them. You don't get to know what it's like to try to love your enemies until you've tried to love your enemies. There's challenges involved with that. It's not as simple as just saying, yep, love my enemies now. It doesn't work like that. If you've tried, if you thought, wow, Jesus is teaching me to love my enemies and I need to be able to do that, I've tried and failed. I tried again and failed. And now what do I do? Those are things you learn as you get experience in trying to hold to the teachings of Christ. They don't just magically happen because you know the answer. We've got to live it out. Then we get to the place where we begin to know the truth. Our experience takes us beyond the realm of speculation and theory, and we start getting real knowledge into the depth of what God is asking. And we start to understand it, and then we get to freedom. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So it isn't knowing in that academic sense, yeah, I love your enemies, great, I'm free now. You may be embroiled in bitterness and unforgiveness and know the answer to the question. And you're not at all free from that darkness. You are just covered in that darkness and it's holding you back and and tainting your heart and you know the answer. Dwell in the teaching, endeavor to do it. God will help you because he knows it's not simple. He'll work you through that. About a year ago, I heard the word platitude. I'm like, what's a platitude? And it's a cutesy little religious phrase that's not actually true, but it's supposed to make you feel better. Like everything happens for a reason. Now, the reason might be that you just sabotaged your life, but it's not God's perfect plan. It's you wrecking your life. That's a reason. But what it means is, you know, God's got a good thing. He's planning through this. Well, maybe he's planning for you to finally come to your senses and quit ruining your life. But everything happens for a reason is a platitude. We shouldn't just be like, okay, well, then I'm doing everything I can, I guess, because everything happens for a reason. No, repent, man, <laughs> and, and start walking with God. That's just a platitude. We don't want to be stuck in platitudes, even though they might be you know, uh, encouraging in the moment. They're hollow because you don't get anywhere. You don't get free from anything. Let's get beyond that into the truth that can set us free. As we talked about in our previous series, The way of the early church, we talked about the new covenant, going from the old covenant into the new covenant, where the law is written on our hearts and our minds, and we have the mind of Christ and the Spirit of God. And the the big deal with the new covenant is that we get to connect with God in an intimate way where there's no technicalities or loopholes. There is no possibility for legalistic righteousness in the new covenant Because there's no technicalities and loopholes. It's just our heart open before God. And that's it. No technicalities or loopholes. And it's the same thing with getting free. You can't get free on a technicality. 
You can't get free on a loophole. We have to follow the steps. We have to hold to the teachings. Then we have to learn some hard lessons that we didn't anticipate. And then we get to a depth of understanding of the ways of God where we start to conquer the things that have been holding us back. The good news is you can do that. God designed this for every human being to be able to do that. It isn't beyond us. It isn't something that we can't grab hold of. This is God's simple plan for all of us. If it's His plan, we can participate in it. He's made us in such a way to participate in it. It's His plan. So, let's apply these three steps of holding to the teachings and then getting to know the truth and then being free to getting free from your past sins. One of the very important teachings of Christianity is that we can be forgiven. We can be free from our past sins. And so let's just talk about this basic gospel message of freedom from our past sins for just a moment. The gospel is where God's love and God's justice collide over our sin. You know God loves you? Jesus loves you. You know He loves you individually. I was talking to someone about paying a higher vet bill than the value of the pet. You ever done that? Where, you know, the cat is not worth a $400 vet bill. Why do you pay the $400 vet bill for a $5 cat? It's not that you want to have any cat. You want that cat, right? You're in love with that cat. And so you pay a great price for it. Jesus has paid a great price for each one of us. And you may not think that you're worth the Son of God's death on the cross and His shed blood to forgive you of your sin. You may not think that you're worth that. But He doesn't just want to have some people in heaven. He wants you in heaven. He'll pay a higher price than what you're worth because He loves you. And He wants you in heaven. So God loves you. But God is also just. God is a God of justice. If there is a wrong, the wrong needs to be righted. If there is damage, the damage needs to be corrected. Our God is a God of justice. And so anything that we do must be punished. Any sin we commit must be dealt with. He doesn't just let it go because he's a God of justice. We don't just let people off. If someone wrongs you in some horrible way, and then I just said, ah, just don't even worry about it. Is that justice? We're just going to let them go. It's fine. Don't let it bother you. That's injustice, right? God is just. Jesus says in the word that if anybody causes a little one to sin, he'd be better off having a millstone tied to him and be thrown in the sea because he's going to have to face God. He's a God of justice. He's going to straighten it out. But you see a conflict between God's love and God's justice. He loves us, but we have disqualified ourselves from heaven. Heaven is the eternal kingdom of God, full of creative, intelligent, free-willed beings that are in the presence of God where there's no sin, no darkness, no pain forever. That's pretty awesome. Is anybody going to like talk bad about you behind your back in heaven? No. So if you do that, you can't go. Is anybody going to take anything from you in heaven? No. If you do that, you can't go. Is anyone going to lie in heaven? You do that, you can't go. You'll wreck it. So those things must be destroyed for heaven to exist in the first place. That's why the wages of sin is death. All the evil, all the darkness, it all must be destroyed for heaven and God's plan to come to pass. So the wages of sin is death. That's God's justice. So God's love and God's justice collide with each other 
right over our sin. And the new plan is the plan of redemption. Where God says, I love them, the price must be paid. And Jesus says, yep, but I'll pay the price. So Jesus, on the cross, satisfies, through the plan of redemption, the love of God and the justice of God. The price is paid and we're set free. What a great promise to have our past sins forgiven, to have our, our mistakes, our failures, all the things that have separated us from God be just destroyed and we get to walk in newness of life, born again, free and in the presence of God. What an incredible, glorious promise. Let's not know that promise, but not do it. Let's not have that first level of, yep, that's a neat promise. Isn't that sweet? And not grab hold of it. What a disaster that would be. And so how do we apply these three steps? This hold to the teaching, then we know the truth, then the truth sets us free to getting free from our past sins. There's a variety of ways to look at it. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And we have a teaching there. We're going to hold to it. I'm going to give you some examples of things we can learn and then examples of way we're free. 1 John 1, starting in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So this is very similar to what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. You know, you you think you're fine, but you're not. You need to be set free. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here's the promise. That if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. He'll purify us from our sins and from all unrighteousness. He'll have forgiveness for us. What a glorious, wonderful promise. And then verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word has no place in our lives. So we see the great promise of forgiveness Sandwiched between, and don't you live in denial. Don't you pretend you're just fine without God. Yes, you need to be forgiven. So, step one, how do we hold to this teaching that's in verse 9? How do we hold to this teaching? That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How do we hold to that? Well, we have to confess our sins. We have to acknowledge our sins and confess our sins. To who? To God and to people. We confess our sins to God. We go before God. And then when we can, if it's appropriate, we confess to people as well. If you've got a a trusted friend, a trusted mentor, if you've got someone who's helping you move forward in life, then you need to speak these things out to that person. There are also times where you've wronged someone and you need to confess to them what you've done to them. So we confess to people and we confess to God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There are times too where the person to confess to is gone and all that's left is us and God. Well, that's sufficient. If all that's left is you and God, In that situation, then you confess to God. So that's the teaching we're to hold to. We're to actually acknowledge and confess our sins to God. Step two, then we'll know the truth. We'll learn from experience. If we put this into practice, there will be things we learn, not just immediately, but over time. God will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How many people have confessed their sins to God and found that they hadn't been purified from all unrighteousness. So this is a process. 
Oh, it isn't just a platitude that we can just take care of in 15 seconds or less. There's a process here of being purified from all unrighteousness. That's a huge promise. That means that we're not just forgiven from the past, but that carries into our future. That we don't keep messing all that stuff up in the future too. So what do we learn when we confess to God and we confess to people? I've got a list of things that I wrote down that I've learned. What do you learn? I've learned these things. Some of my sins are obvious to me and some are buried. When I confess my sins to God, I'm still carrying some that I'm not very aware of. You also learn some things are hard to acknowledge. If you have to say something out loud, something that you need to confess to God or to a person, it can be hard to acknowledge. It can be hard to acknowledge to you and confessing a hidden sin to someone can be a very scary thing. When you attempt to hold to this teaching, you can find that it's easier to compare yourself to others and justify your problems than it is to compare yourself to Christ's standard and acknowledge that you need to change. One thing I learned is that accountability groups have their limits. If nobody in the accountability group is having any success, then it's just a support group for sinners. But it's not anything to do with getting better. I learned that there's always another layer under this one. You can learn that confessing to the wrong person does not bring healing. You can learn that something broke off of me when I confessed that out loud. You can learn that God still loves me and has not rejected me. You can learn after confessing that it's easier to pray and I don't feel ashamed to pray and to worship. Now we're starting to get into that freedom. Now you know the truth and the truth will set you free. Those two can kind of be interwoven sometimes as we start to attain to some freedom and we gain more truth and we gain more freedom. As time goes on, we progress more and more. When we grab hold of freedom, we realize that God's forgiveness is real and I know that He's rooting for me every day. When we confess our sins to God, we walk in this for a while, we go from that shame relationship to God to knowing that God is like, come on, boy, you can do it. You can get past that one. Oh, there's the temptation. You can do it. You can do it. Oh, next time. You'll get it next time, man. You can do it. God's rooting for you. He's not waiting to squash you. You learn that the temptation of the confessed sin is broken or weakened every time you confess it. That that pull starts to not be so strong. You start to be able to say, what, you think you can pull me? You can't pull me. And you can walk away. You learn that power. Now we're starting to get free. You learn that you can, you can feel your connection with God again. You can feel the Spirit guiding you again. You know that eternal life in heaven is yours. When you keep confessing the sins, it doesn't build shame, but the identity lie is broken off of you. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to measure up. I've always got this wrong with me. You feel broken and tainted and like you're never going to fit in or belong. The identity lie is broken off and you see yourself from God's perspective. You know who you are. You can look at yourself in the mirror and smile. Man, we're starting to get free from the garbage in the past. Amen? But it doesn't come from just memorizing 1 John 1, 9 and, and then walking away. It comes from holding to the teaching, learning some truth, fighting through it, and getting to the fullness of the freedom that comes from that. I tell you, it is way better to grab the promise than it is to watch it float by. To have heard the preacher say loud things and say, yeah, I guess I'm doing pretty good now. Now, 
Don't deceive yourself by listening to a message and going, yeah, that was a good message. Praise God, brother. Confess your sins. Let me show you the fullness of the promise in this life. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 8 is when we get free from our past sins and we walk into the joy of the Lord. It looks like this. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. This is the fullness of the freedom of being freed from our past sins. We're filled with joy because we know we're right with God. We have our inheritance in heaven that can't perish or spoil or fade. We're walking with God. And even if we're walking through trials, we're walking with God. And He weeps with us. And we're conquering the enemy's strongholds and we're getting free. That's where we get when we confess our sins to God. We turn our lives to Him. And then we walk forward in new life.